You are listening to Historically, a show where we debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. I'm your host, Isha. Today, we are going to welcome Daniel Kovalik again to talk about the human rights industry and the myth of U.S. intervention. Thank you again, Dan, for coming. Your last time we spoke a lot about the cases you did as a labor and human rights lawyer regarding Colombia. So can we just start off with uh, just a recap of what's going on in Colombia? Because recently there has been a ruling from the court that says President Uribe is under house arrest. Yes, it's quite an interesting uh, development. You know, many of us have been saying for years that Uribe was deeply tied into the paramilitaries in Colombia. There's ample evidence for that. Even at one point, he was listed in the top 100 uh, drug traffickers by the U.S. and intelligence agency of the U.S., the DIA. And so, but what's surprising is that finally he may be being brought to justice for this. He was president from two, I believe, 2002 to 2010. During that time, it was probably the worst human rights period in Colombia since La Violencia in the 1950s. Thousands of trade unionists were killed thousands of human rights defenders, and you had this false positive scandal in which the military killed probably 10,000 innocent people and then dressed them up as guerrillas. So he's a pretty bad guy. Of course, he won the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Um, George W. Bush gave that to him. But finally, through activism in Colombia, he is now under house arrest and he's being investigated for this collusion with uh, paramilitaries and for using the paramilitaries to sway elections, including through violence. So it's a very positive development, I think. That makes sense. And I don't remember who was president in 2016, but they were voting on a ballot measure about a treaty with FARC. And some people say that those elections were swayed through the use of other paramilitaries. <laughs> yeah, well, that's very true. Yes, that was, uh, I believe Manuel Santos was president at that time. He was uh, Uribe's defense minister. And yes, again, uh, there were many instances in which you know, the paramilitaries essentially would coerce an entire town through violence to vote certain ways. And again, that was very common. Um, that's been very common in Colombia for decades. So finally, you know, to have someone like Uribe brought to justice for this would be very, very welcome, I think. But of course, you know, being stateside here, I'd love to see, yeah. Juan Manuel Santos was the president at that time. 
So since the last time you've written a book called No More War, how the West violates international law by using humanitarian intervention to advance economic and strategic interests. And what popped up in my mind is Senator Chris Murphy's thread about Venezuela and the humanitarian crisis allegedly there. You know, like many so-called humanitarian interventions, uh, in the case of Venezuela, it was the U.S. that largely created the humanitarian crisis that the U.S. is trying to use to justify overthrowing the government there. And so what do I mean by that? You know, uh, since uh, Chavez, Hugo Chavez, was elected in 1998, Venezuela had done an amazing job at reducing poverty, reducing extreme poverty, getting, you know, food to people who had been food insecure. And it's not just me saying this. The World Bank said that. The Inter- uh, International Monetary Fund said that. They got a lot of kudos for the work they did to really improve the living situation of the vast majority of Venezuelan people. And, you know, the U.S., which was trying to overthrow the government of Hugo Chavez, really since the time he was elected, their goal was to stop that sort of progress. And so they supported these management-led oil strikes in the early 2000s, engaged in a lot of activities to try to undermine the economy. And this was really ramped up under Obama in 2015 with the first round of sanctions against Venezuela. And Donald Trump has only tightened the screws on Venezuela with more sanctions, which have really cut Venezuela off from a lot of the worldwide economy and from international financing, including from the World Bank and the IMF. For example, recently, Venezuela asked the IMF for a $5 billion loan to deal with the pandemic in Venezuela. And the IMF denied it. And it was clear that the U.S., you know, played a role in making sure that 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 happened. And in 2017, just going back a little bit, Donald Trump really increased sanctions on Venezuela, again, really targeting on Venezuela's ability to get international financing. And this was very devastating for Venezuela. They were effectively cut off from from medicines, life-saving medicines, from food. And there was a study done by the Center for Economic Policy Research, otherwise known as CEPR. It was co-authored by Mark Weisbrot and Jeffrey Sachs out of Columbia University. And they concluded that in, one, in, in a mere one-year period from 2017 to 2018, 40,000 Venezuelans died as a result of the increased sanctions against that country. And they estimated that based on the number of people who needed medicines that they could no longer get. And those included HIV medications chemotherapy medications, insulin, 
supplies for dialysis equipment. And that's only in a one-year period. And they estimated that many more would die in the year after. One UN expert, Dr. Alfred Desias, um, for his part in 2019, concluded that uh, at least 100,000 Venezuelans had died due to those sanctions by that time. And so the point is that the U.S. has intentionally tried to cause suffering in Venezuela, tried to destroy its economy. And now when Venezuela is struggling, you know, with an economy that, yes, is in bad shape, with a healthcare system that is strained by these sanctions and now by this pandemic, now the U.S. is like, oh, we have to intervene to, you know, protect the Venezuelan people. When again, it's the U.S. which has helped to create this crisis there. Yeah, there are so many aspects of your book that is so good. I don't know where to start. It's funny that you mentioned that in the beginning, people actually thought that King Leopold the guy who had the rubber coatas and chopped people's hands off was considered a humanitarian. I, I, I also actually agree with you on Adam Huckstyle's books. I'm like, Congo is horrific on its own. You don't have to do false comparisons to Stalin. Just come down. Um, but, right, right. <laughs> okay, so let's start with the human rights organization. You kind of talk about Amnesty International and how they opposed Mandela. And while we're at it, let's also talk about Human Rights Watch. Yes, what yes. makes them not the objective arbiter of human rights? I know it's a stupid question, but please bear with me. No, no, not at all. I think it's a great question. I think because very few people, they don't even bother to ask the right questions about it because they don't understand how those human rights organizations work and work in the interest of really Western imperialism, if I can use the I word. Of course. So there's an interesting guy. He's, he's a professor at the University of Illinois Law School. His name's Francis A. Boyle. And he was on the founding board of Amnesty International. And he ended up leaving there very disillusioned. And what he says, and it's, you know, once he says it, it's quite obvious, but he says, look, the first goal of groups like Amnesty International, the first goal is to make money or, you know, not necessarily profit, but make money to be able to have an organization to pay people very big salaries and, to, you know, be able to send people across the ocean to different countries, that sort of thing. So they need money and, and they're not getting money from developing countries. They're getting it from, you know, foundations, very mainstream foundations in the West and in the United States. Uh, and they're getting some U.S. government money as well, for example, from the USAID. Mm. So um, immediately they're compromised, right? Because immediately they're going to be somewhat beholden to those people giving them money and to the West in general, to the, you know, developed countries that are, are supporting them. The other thing Boyle points out, so the other thing they want is, you know, credibility 
and when I say credibility, I mean they they want to be thought of well by who? Well, by the people they raise funds from, by political leaders, again, largely in countries like the U.S. and Europe, and by the Western media. You know, they, they want to have a certain status, which makes sense. Of course, if you're going to be a human rights group and all you do is report on human rights issues, you know, you have to have a certain standing. You know, and again, they really care about their standing in the Western world. So, again, they need to please all of the people and entities I just mentioned, which, again, creates a certain amount of bias. In the case, for example, of Human Rights Watch, they, you know, they end up having very questionable people (laughs) on their their board, like the former Supreme Commander of NATO. Jesus. Wait, is it? Is this the Nazi or the one after that? I think he was the one after. Okay. Um, But, you know, obviously that guy's going to have a certain viewpoint on the world because NATO is, you know, an arm of Western imperialism. It supports these interventions in other countries. And there's, you can go through the list of the people on their board. There's a lot of people like that. And again, very prominent politicians And so, again, they want to please those people, and those people help to set the agenda because they're on their board. And so that creates a certain bias in the way that they report and who they report on and who they report on the most, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, just two days ago, the head of Human Rights Watch, Ken Roth, baselessly accused Hezbollah of causing the explosions when it was basically an accident that had to do with an old ship's like inventory that wasn't cleared. Right, the, right, the explosions in Beirut, right. And no one was blaming Hezbollah, no one, except him, right? And, yes. And he was doing it within minutes of hearing that this happened, completely out there. Right. I mean, really so irresponsible for him to do that. But, yeah, that's exactly what you see. And why? Because and he does that because he knows that that will be a selling point for his organization. Again, with people in Congress, even with a president, you know. And so these folks pander to the powerful. And ultimately, they end up supporting war and conflict instead of trying to prevent it. And then, by the way, both Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch, as I note in my book, both of them take a position of being neutral in terms of whether, for example, the U.S. should go to war <laughs> against, against another country, right? No, uh, Generally the right the, answer. <laughs> right, no is generally the right answer. And by the way, the UN Charter and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and all sorts of human rights covenants, they all condemn aggressive war. Okay, so it's not like as a human rights organization, uh, whether someone goes to war or not against another country is irrelevant to your mandate. It should be, in fact, you know, uh, critical to to a human rights organization's mandate, but they don't see it that way. 
So at best, they're neutral. For example, in the case of when the U.S. invaded Iraq in 2003, they were very intentionally took no position on it. But then once the U.S. did invade, they told both the U.S. and the Iraqis to play nice with each other, right? Which is an absurdity. And that's one of the points I tried to drive home in my book. Once the war starts, despite international humanitarian law, such as the Geneva Conventions or the Hague Conventions, once the war starts, human rights abuses start, torture starts, rape starts. I mean, this one flows naturally from the other. And again, that is why the UN Charter, above all things, was created to prevent aggressive war because the founders of the UN Charter understood after World War I and World War II that, again, all the evils that the nations are concerned about, human rights abuses, humanitarian law violations, genocide, all those things flow directly from war. So they understood that to prevent those things, you have to prevent war in the first place, right? But these human rights groups don't recognize that. You know, this very basic truism, really. And, And then it gets worse because then you have, for example, the NATO invasion of Libya in 2011 And in that instance, you really had groups like Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International. While they did not explicitly call for intervention, they certainly cheerled that operation and pimped information that wasn't true in order to lay the groundwork for that invasion. Um, And I go through you know, those, those facts in my book, the untruths. And ultimately, Libya is much worse off today than it was before the intervention. There's no comparison. I mean, it used to be Africa's richest country, and now it's filled with ISIS. And I also see, for example, with Human Rights Watch, uh, I, I I know I can probably like pick on them all day long. So I promise to yeah, go, I, go for it. Okay. Yeah. I, <laughs> I promise the audience that I won't pick on them all day long because you guys will get bored. But for example, they actually wrote a report about the quote unquote Uyghur detention centers. And they cited Adrian's, who's a Christian fascist who believes that feminism is the same as Satanism. And Yet, if you were to objectively compare, let's say, China with India, which are bordering each other, with what's going on with human rights with regards to Muslims, things that are happening in India is far more concerning, and Human Rights Watch doesn't seem to have a statement on Kashmir and the violence and the rule of law. But they're willing to... um, launder this really stupid report by a Christian extremist where he has very shady methodology and most of it is just like lies, straight up lies. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's exactly right. Again, how it works is these groups tend to vilify countries that 
are at odds with the United States and Europe. So they attack China's human rights conditions and Syria's human rights conditions and Iran's. And they tend, not that they won't criticize India a bit or Europe or the U.S. to some extent, but that is not their focus. They really, they focus on countries that the U.S. not only is at odds with, but also would like to invade, right? Exactly. So they're really the kind of vanguard or the handmaidens of war. They they really help lay the groundwork for that. And again, Libya was a very key case where that happened. And now slaves are being sold in markets in Libya after the intervention. You know, an intervention that, that folks claimed was to prevent human rights abuses, to prevent genocide. In fact, what happened was you had human rights abuses con- committed en masse by NATO, by the jihadists it supported, and you had genocide against black sub-Saharan Africans living in Libya as a result of the NATO intervention and as a result of lies told not only by the U.S., but by human rights groups like Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch that parroted lies about so-called black mercenaries in Libya. Yes, Chad, mercenaries that did not really exist. They didn't exist. And in fact, Amnesty International later said they didn't exist. And in fact, they were... uh, Libyans were darker skinned. Right. And some were Africans, you know, who came from sub-Saharan Africa to Libya to work. They had work visas. And they were there as, as construction workers, for example. They weren't mercenaries. Uh, but that lie helped propel the war and also propel the genocide, which ended up happening uh, once the jihadists started to take over Libya. They began to kill black Libyans to depopulate entire black towns, to uh-huh. put black black Libyans in jail en masse. That was all the result, not only of the intervention, but the lies that, again, some of these human rights groups peddled at a very critical time. I mean, really, there's those groups should have been, they should have lost all credibility after that happened. You know, people like Kenneth Ross should have been fired. Some of those groups should have gone out of business because it was shameful what they did. Instead, they doubled down. So, for example, Amnesty International USA ended up hiring a State Department official who helped push for the war in Libya. They hired her after the invasion, again, which I I detail in the book. It's just insane. I mean, and now she finally, they, they got rid of her or she resigned when there was huge protests by people, peace activists, who said, what are you doing hiring this person? But, you know, it, that's what it, it's evidence of this very uh, incestuous relationship, this revolving door between these human rights groups and the State Department, which really compromise their mission, I believe. 
your book both talks about the UN framework and the human rights organization. So I'm going to ask the same question for both of them. But for right now, let's just talk about the human rights organizations. They seem to be focused on crimes or atrocities or violations by state actors. But we don't see them talking too much about non-state actors, like what Chevron is doing in Ecuador or or the fact that they privatized water in Argentina. So the fact that they won't speak on non-state actors, or very rarely they do, already like prejudices them against a more socialist government. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, I think that is true. I mean, I think that's a good point. They really don't. And we have to, you know, point out the fact that there are corporations in the world that have larger profits that dwarf the GNPs of many nations, right? These corporate actors are almost quasi-state actors, you know, because of how much resources they have. And as you say, really, they're generally not the target of these human rights groups, even though they can be responsible for huge and gross human rights abuses. For example, to throw it out, uh, to, to be more specific, look at the Congo, right? The Democratic Republic of Congo. You have companies operating there that have helped to stabilize Congo, that use child labor, that have used, you know, these paramilitary groups from Rwanda and Uganda to take over huge swaths of Congo resulting in the deaths of literally millions of people. And these are companies that many of them mine these rare minerals that we use in our cell phones and computers, uh, things like uh, uh, cobalt and uh, tungsten. And so they are very much the engine of human rights abuses in countries like Congo or countries like Bolivia. You might have seen recently that Elon Musk recently tweeted something out which amounted to an admission that he had helped overthrow Evo Morales in Bolivia uh, because of his interest in Bolivia's lithium resources. You know, because of course, electric cars run on lithium batteries, and Bolivia has the largest lithium reserves in the world. And, and I want to stay with Bolivia for a moment. So, because you also had the complicity of human rights groups in the overthrow of Morales. So they were complicit in helping, maybe unknowingly, but the truth is they were complicit in this coup, which Elon Musk says is implicated in. So last year, there was uh, an election in which Evo Morales, who's a socialist, was reelected uh, president of Bolivia. And very quickly, the U.S. State Department, the Organization of American States, and human rights groups like Human Rights Watch cried foul, said the elections were not fair, they were somehow rigged, and uh, they, they based it on the fact that there was some delay between the actual voting and the vote count being released. But remember, the opposition was rioting and burning down these polling stations during that delay. Right. And of course, they were being applauded by Western media, by human rights groups. 
This was a breaking out of democracy. This was, according to these groups, this was the flourishing of, of, of democratic forces against Evo Morales, who they were tired of, etc. Well, fast forward to this year, the New York Times recently, who, who had been one of the media outlets that pushed this claim that Morales, that his reelection was the product of fraud, they end up saying, well, now that there's been some very good research done into this, it appears that wasn't true, that in fact, Morales won fair and square. But the damage had been done. Uh, these claims that were false led to a coup against Morales, a military coup, which is still in place in Bolivia. Uh, this coup government has been killing indigenous people, uh, has been rolling back the social programs Morales put in place, including health care programs, uh, which are now the rolling back of those programs are putting people at risk of COVID-19. This has been a disaster for Bolivia and for Bolivian people, for indigenous rights, for human rights. And again, this coup was brought to you by not just the government of the United States, but corporations like that of, of, of Elon Musk and by human rights groups that were very quick to condemn Morales and to applaud those who were the real ones destroying democracy in Bolivia. And as of now, um, because Morales' party is still leading by a landslide, they've postponed the elections again in Bolivia. Yeah, yeah I think that this is the third postponement or so. Meanwhile, people are, are dying of, of, of COVID there in huge numbers. The economy is collapsing. Human rights are collapsing. It's a disaster. And again, human rights groups are not being held accountable for this because they help bring this about. Well, we've finally racked up enough human rights abuses among our staff to warrant the ire of multiple organizations and are now a target for regime change. Please help stave off any humanitarian intervention by subscribing to our Substack. There, you can get our newsletter, listen to our podcast, and help support us with your subscription. That's historically.substack.com. Now, let's just slightly shift gears because you also talk about international law. And I guess, in theory, the international laws against the crimes of humanity and the laws of war, in theory, seem to be good. But I just don't see it ever actually getting any of them at any person because i mean the let's face it the biggest perpetrator of war crimes is probably the u.s and it's exempted itself from the icc so where do we go next what happens yeah well the, what you say is true i mean what has happened is that the u.n charter and the human rights covenants that have have been agreed to since the UN Charter, have been very systematically eroded, mostly by the United States, in order to allow the U.S. to act unilaterally throughout the world, uh, including in engaging in uh, aggressive unilateral wars throughout the world. 
And so you don't have much of a rule of law internationally is the truth. You know, the U.S. never signed the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court. Now Donald Trump has sanctioned the uh, International Criminal Court because it is going to investigate the U.S. for war crimes in Afghanistan. The U.S. has withdrawn from the Human Rights Council, which is the highest human rights body in the world created by the U.N. Charter. You know, so what countries like the U.S. have made clear to the world is that international law applies to everyone but themselves. And so what you have is the rule of the mighty against the weak. And that is a terrible situation. That is exactly what the world wanted to avoid after World War II. And that's why they set up the UN. Um, So where do we go from here? I mean, I think ultimately the buck has to stop in the United States. The U.S. is the greatest threat to world peace in the world. It does not abide by international law. It is engaged as we speak in several different wars in the world, wars of choice too, not because we were attacked by these countries, but because the U.S. decided it wanted to invade them for various reasons. Again, all those things violate the U.N. Charter quite clearly. And there are two international polls taken recently in which people in, I think it was 60,000 people and 60 different countries uh, were polled and they, you know, resoundingly uh, voted for the U.S. as the greatest danger to world peace. And again, I think they're right about that. So I think for us as Americans, it's up to us to hold our government accountable. We need to build a a brisk peace movement that is going to say, look, we don't want the U.S. spending over a trillion dollars a year on the military. We do not want to be engaging in these foreign interventions. Uh, We want our troops to be brought home, to build here, to rebuild the infrastructure here that's falling apart. To me, that's the best thing we can do. I think it's up to us to do that. And we have to say we want our country to be held accountable to international law in the same way we claim we want other countries to be. I like that you add the right to peace as a human right because it is. I mean, if you're constantly getting bombed, you can't build anything else on top of that. No, of course. It's absolutely true. You know, and because this country really doesn't have much experience in war, at least in wars that affect our homeland, we're really not cognizant of the fact that wars destabilize your country, destroy your infrastructure, you know, of course, kill civilians. If you experience a country at war, it is a quite unpleasant situation, right? And so the right to peace has got to be considered, and again, the UN and the UN Charter consider it the most basic right, because without peace, 
you can't have a functioning economy, a functioning government. You can't have human rights. That should be obvious to people. And we need to impress that on, on people in this country. Yeah. Another thing that people don't realize is that the U.S. intervention comes with a lot of privatization, corporate welfare, and self-dealing, like no matter where you go. And the most frustrating thing is that I can smell the regime change propaganda from the mile away. It has not changed from the first Gulf War. It's the same exact thing. Why do people fall for it over and over? Well, it's a great question. I think there's a lot of reasons, but one comes down to this issue of American exceptionalism. This belief that the U.S. is a unique country in the world, this beacon of light, which, despite all of its faults, goes around the world to spread democracy and human rights. And so, and Americans generally buy that. American, you know, this myth of American exceptionalism. And so they're quite ready to believe in the next lie, uh, which will lead us to war. You know, even though, as you say, nearly every war, if not every war the U.S. has fought, has been based on a lie. And at some point, usually it comes out publicly, okay, that was a lie, right? So now everyone recognizes There were no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, okay? We claimed we were going to war there to get rid of weapons of mass destruction, which, by the way, many at the time knew that wasn't true. And even if it were true, that would not be a reason to go to war. But put that aside, now everyone accepts the fact that wasn't true. But as you say, then when Obama wants to attack Libya, people believed all the lies told to support that war. Again, because Americans generally believe that our country operates altruistically in the world when there's, that's just, there's no evidence for that. that. None. Uh, but it's a belief. And that's why, you know, I wrote the book that I wrote to try to dispel that myth, to try to say, look, if, if the U.S. is unique in any regard, it's that we are the most a warlike nation that's ever existed. And that, by the way, is a direct quote from Jimmy Carter, who said that a couple of years ago. And it's demonstrably true. And and we need to to take stock of ourselves and, and to change this country and make it a country that is not based on war and violence. One thing you mentioned in your book is how there's only a certain type of genocide that sometimes gets prosecuted. But then there's also, I don't know, I guess, it's, is it a new tendency or whatnot, where just not accepting everything um, the U.S. State Department says, like it's you, like earns you the label of genocide denier. I, I guess it's hard to give people a clear framework to evaluate things like oh, it's a humanitarian issue, there's a genocide going on, when we know that half the time the U.S. completely makes it up. Right. Or that the U.S. itself is committing genocide, (laughs) right, which is often ignored itself. Yes. I just have a good sixth sense. Like, I can sniff out national security propaganda from wherever. But how do you get that sixth sense? 
Well, that's a good question. I mean, because, you know, the mainstream media is so unanimous in its support for U.S. foreign policy that it is hard to get a good read on what's happening in other countries to know whether, you know, the claims about that country are true or not. First of all, I would say that, again, given the many lies that have been told to justify U.S. interventions throughout the world, it would be good to be skeptical of any claims being made about human rights situations in other countries. Um, I would say that, you know, and then starting from that premise that you're skeptical, I think it's good to read alternative press about what's happening in other countries you know, read things like Counterpunch, The Gray Zone, uh, Popular Resistance, you know, that have a different take on what's happening in those other countries. And of course, at least when we're able to travel again, after hopefully it ends, this pandemic, um, I certainly encourage people who can to visit some of these countries. You know, I think once you go to a country, that the U.S. is either at war with or wants to be at war with, you see a very different side of that country than you're getting in the mainstream press. Uh, A very good example, well, there's many examples of this, but, you know, people who went to Vietnam during the war, including soldiers, U.S. soldiers, you know, they saw what was happening and many ended up becoming peace activists, you know, because they saw that it was the U.S. really that was acting criminally in that country. But the other place was in Central America in the 80s. And that's where I learned what was happening. I learned that the U.S. was the aggressor in these countries, that it was the U.S. and its client states in Central America that were doing the lion's share of the killing and human rights abuses in those countries. And it it changed my view of the world, and it made me look differently at what I was being told. And that that happened to a lot of people who who made those trips. And again, I understand maybe for a while it's going to be hard to do those sorts of things, but at least to look at alternative media sources that give you a different glimpse as to what's happening is very critical to decide what's happening. Yeah, that's what I think too. And I, like, if there's one thing I could change about the crimes against humanity is that corporations can get away with the worst crimes and not be responsible because they don't fall into any one country's jurisdiction. Yeah, and that's a huge problem. And I agree that, that there has to be a lot more focus on corporate crimes, which are so great. Uh, Not only in other countries, but here, just for example, I saw a story in the last couple of days that Tyson Foods in the U.S., and I believe it's in one of the Carolinas, has created one of the largest dead zones in the ocean in the world through its operations. And again, you don't hear about that a lot, but these corporations are some of the biggest polluters and human rights abusers on earth. And as you say, we need to focus on what they're doing and to hold them accountable. Yeah. 
so I love your book with No More War because it gives you like such a good, it gives people such a good rundown of everything that is cause that causes a war, like all the actors and organizations, not just one. If there's one thing people can learn from your book, what is it that you hope? Again, I hope folks learn what so many people learned after the great wars, and that was that war is the greatest scourge on humankind, and that the best way to protect human rights, the best way to prevent genocide, is to prevent the war before it starts. And we are very uniquely situated in the U.S. We have the privilege of trying to stop, again, the country that engages in war more than any country on earth. And that should be a huge priority for us. That makes a lot of sense. And what are you going to do next? What's your next book or project? Well, I'm not sure. I I do uh, teach international human rights at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law, which I'll uh, be doing in the fall. I do write articles often for things like Counterpunch, which people can go to counterpunch.org to find. Wait, one quick thing. While we're all talking about free speech and cancel culture and all that, can we kind of talk about how no one talks about the right to organize a union as part of a free speech and how that's being violated worldwide? If you don't mind it, just for a few minutes. Yeah, no, I think it's important. And and we don't even have to go beyond our borders to talk about that. I mean, right now, you know, the U.S. labor movement has been declining for years. Uh, and the current National Labor Relations Board under Trump is the wor- worst board that we've ever had. It's, it's, it's the entity that was founded in 1935 to protect workers' rights, and now it's been converted into an agency to destroy workers' rights. And I'm not being hyperbolic by saying that. But in addition, in our culture, I think, as you, I think, touched upon, when people think of activism or they think of, you know, trying to improve, you know, living standards in this country, I think a lot of people don't think about unions as a vehicle to do that. And I think unions are more necessary than ever right now, you know, and and you see some labor unrest in the U.S. that needs to be supported. There's been these wildcat strikes by people at Amazon uh, opposing their horrible, not only pay, but uh, working conditions, even at uh, workers at General Electric striking to force GE to make ventilators um, during the pandemic. You know, workers have a lot of power when they're united and they act in a united fashion. And and I think that has been largely forgotten and ignored. And again, I think by organizing unions and defending the right to organize, I think that will help to, you know, make a world that we want to live in. Yeah. Um, and of course, um, we know that many of these corporations are doing like shooting and killing unionists and uh, abroad, which is 
which had to do with a lot to do with your lawsuits and your work. I, I guess a lot of things are political, regardless of what we want to think about them or not. Well, I think that's right. I mean, and again, healthcare is political. I mean, look at this pandemic, how it's been politicized, how, you know, the rich have used this pandemic to enrich themselves. Major corporations are making huge profits, including Amazon, for example, Why and getting government bailouts while the people are getting very little. And we're seeing that, you know, this second stimulus plan has been solved. Who knows what it'll be passed, what it'll look like. You know, but meanwhile, the rich continue to get richer. And it's, of course, very revealing that while our economy is collapsing, right, the GNP went down like 9% in the second quarter this year. It's, that sets a record uh, since the Great Depression. Uh, while people, millions of people are being thrown out of work, thrown out of their homes, the stock market continues to go up, which shows how disconnected, you know, the wealthy are and their interests from the rest of this society. They don't care that the economy is collapsing, that ordinary people are out of work and sick, don't have health care. They continue to make money. And again, they continue to be bailed out by the government. So, yeah. Even this crisis, this health crisis, has been politicized in a way, you know, which has really hurt average Americans. And, and that is something that I'd like to see people push back against. That, to me, is what I wish, too. And I just am often frustrated by how easy it is to, I guess, distract people and how hard it is to or organize anything here. But I guess we got to keep trying. <laughs> yeah, well, I agree. It is hard. We live in a land of make-believe in many ways. And I think just to speak the truth and to point out these facts that, that we are pointing out is itself a rebellious act. Again, when, when in a world full of lies, uh, the truth is revolutionary. I think maybe Orwell said that. And I believe that, you know, we have to keep telling the truth and keeping and keep people focused on what's really happening and what's really important. Thank you so much for joining us again. And we'll provide a link in the description box where people can find your new book. I loved it. It was very illuminating because of the history, like, like how he goes through all the details of the different actors instead of just like one like US government war like there are like a hundred little machines that spin with that <laughs> well thank you thank you very much I appreciate that and I, I'm so happy to be on your show and I'd love to do it again oh absolutely we should definitely do it again and thank you so much have a good day you too thank you music for this show is done by Rectech you can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show.